Thank you for joining us for IEB There. And now your host, Brad Behrens. Over to you, Brad. Hi, everybody. I don't know if I'm live yet. You're live. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to IB There. My name is Brad Behrens. I can't see myself on the screen right now, but that's okay. I'm going to presume that people are able to hear me. IB There is our daily live stream show. Uh, we are here to connect the interactive advertising community, uh, particularly during this time of coronavirus crisis. Uh, I want to say this is the end of our second week. We launched this uh, two Mondays ago. We've had remarkable collaboration from people throughout the industry and within IAB. I want to thank every single person who's participated and everyone who's appeared today. Um, our topic today is navigating coronavirus misinformation with Hazel Baker. Hazel is, let me see, she's the head of UGC news gathering at Reuters. And uh, she gave a remarkable presentation about the technology around deep fakes at our annual leadership meeting in uh, Palm Desert in February. We invited her to join us today. She is in London, so she is kindly interrupting the dinner hour at 7 p.m. there, 2 p.m. Uh, on the East Coast and 11 a.m. here uh, in on the West Coast, which is where I'm coming at you. So uh, in a moment, I'm going to actually, I, I will actually ask the team, let's bring Hazel on while we're transitioning Hazel from the green room onto the screen. Um, I will uh, let everyone know that if you have questions, the appropriate place and the most effective place to post them is on Twitter. Please post your questions for Hazel or me or uh, the IAB in general and use the hashtag IAB there, all caps, one word. IAB there, all caps, one word. And uh, welcome, Hazel. Can you, can you hear me? I can hear you and thanks very much for the welcome. So thank you so much for coming. So we are, um, let's start. Uh, let's start with a, a historical anecdote, which is, uh, it may be a legend, it may be true, but I hope it's true. And it's that in the early days of motion pictures, there was a, uh, a moment in one of the first movies where someone was holding a gun at the audience. And in one of the first screenings of this movie, uh, someone in the audience fired back. And there was a gunshot rang out in the movie theater, and suddenly there was a hole torn through the, the, the screen. Uh, and the reason that I'm saying this is that we have had a conundrum as a species for as long as we've had any kind of communication that's not two people face to face, which is the question, what is real? Um, what is real? Is it a real gun? Is it a fake gun? We laugh at someone shooting back in a movie theater today because we have over a century of experience understanding what, what that genre. And yet, uh, in your remarkable presentation at our annual leadership meeting in February, you were talking about the technology of deep fakes. Our topic today is misinformation, which is adjacent to that. But I just, I wanted to pose the question to you first, which is, this notion of what is real is really hard. Um, and and that's, a, that's what you do. So can you tell us, like, what's your job? Uh, the, the head of UGC news gathering at Reuters, and then the description on your Twitter handle, which is telling stories through verified imagery captured by eyewitnesses. Tell us about that. What is that? Well, well, that was a very good introduction because what is real is exactly what I spend my days trying to figure out. And the reason we do this is because now, so many news events um, are captured by people at the scene on, on smartphones before any of the professional cameras can arrive. And that footage is basically the first 
draft of history, you know, the many, many breaking news stories. And with the coronavirus crisis ongoing, that kind of material, it's not so much spot news events, but it's its allowing access into places that, that broadcast cameras can't get. So we're talking about people in hospital wards, in isolation, um, you know, right at the front line of, of um, medical services. And while we do get Reuters cameras into many dramatic scenes, uh, areas where, where we can tell really, really important stories, we can't ignore that a vast amount of storytelling is now happening by individuals themselves with their, their smartphones and uploading this onto social media. So this is where our team comes in, my team comes in. Every day we are trying to work out which are the most important stories that we need to help our clients tell and, and, and for use on Reuters.com as well. And we look at where our own cameras are and we have 2,500 journalists worldwide, so they are everywhere. But we look at what else is happening. What else do we need to make sure we're covering? Is it those voices from people on those COVID-19 wards you know, that we don't necessarily have access to? So my team uh, searches social media in depth every single day through keywords, through geolocation, through special interest groups, looking for people who've got real stories to tell. And when we think we find something which is a really useful piece of content, then that's when the process of trying to figure out, is it real, begins. And it can be really complex. You have to build up a case of evidence to, to determine whether something is real. If you, were, I often think about it as a lawyer building up that, you know, that case to present to the judge. Have I done this? Have I done this? Do I have corroborating imagery? Do I have another witness? Do I have metadata on the video that shows it was taken at this time? Um, you know, have I looked at the, the details in the video to prove that that matches that location which we're saying it is? So it is it's a question of building up evidence to try to, to, to try to tell the stories most effectively. So you're digging into the the code, right? You're looking at the underlying markers that happen with a with a phone, and if if there's an uh, a curious absence of those markers, that would give you pause. Yes. If, if we don't have uh, more than one view of a news event, that's when I get really suspicious and the, you know, the, the sirens go on. I wanna know why no one else filmed that moment or captured that moment. Um, and if, if we find something in that category, which we do, and we do have to, to use that material, we've got to get every single other aspect really locked down. So things like getting those original files from people, um, even things like, I mean, I remember there was a video from Iraq um, at the start of the year, which showed the first incoming Iranian missiles, we were told. Um, and the user we spoke to gave their exact location, which we didn't publish for, for security reasons. But we could measure the distance between that and the affected airbase. And it matched the distance in uh, the difference in, in sound terms between the flash of light when you see the missile land and the audio of the explosion. So things like that, we go really forensic on, on material when we don't have more than one version of the same event or we don't have an independent witness telling us that's, that's exactly what they saw. So back in the 70s, one of the, the, the first indications of this, the, the need for this kind of scrutiny happened in the Watergate scandal, mm -hmm. where ben, ben Bradley, then the editor-in-chief at The Post, demanded of Woodward and Bernstein that they had to have two sources for everything. And it slowed the process down, uh, but it also, uh, you know, it, it sped, it, it lifted the, the quality and the confidence that the readers could have uh, in that story as it broke. Now. That was one story uh, 40, almost 50 years ago. You're doing this at scale. How many stories are you tracking 
on an average day or week? Like how, how big is the team doing this? Talk to me about the endeavor. And the reason I'm asking is, is not only am I curious, but there's this ongoing defense that we're making at the IB and throughout, which is that news is expensive. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at a moment of, of planetary health crisis, uh, the, the accurate news is, uh, is critical, but it's expensive. So like how many people do you have doing this day to day? So we have 12 people doing it full-time day-to-day and that they're scattered around the globe so they're not all working at the same time we've got 24-7 service um so so they are dedicated to just finding material in social media verifying it and then obviously importantly rights clearing it so that our clients can use it and yeah you're right it's hugely resource heavy and we do work in conjunction with all our journalists and different bureaus around the world and they can help us with language context um, specialism information, which which can help verify it, and that's a hugely important important part of the process. But yeah, there's no escaping the fact that that's that's 12 people just focusing on on this kind of one task. I think I did an examination of how many pieces of video we looked at per week. It was about 200, um, and they definitely don't all make it onto the the Reuters wire, the Reuters website. And uh, we move about 100 pieces of UGC content a week, but that includes pictures too. So the number of videos is, is smaller than than 100. Um, so yeah, that gives you an indication of, of you know, how much stuff has to be discarded and much of that stuff will be authentic. But if we can't prove it's authentic, then it's of no value to our clients. You know, they are very demanding. They need to know how we verified it, what information we know about it. If we can't give an exact date, location, source, it's useless. So yeah, we, we have lots of stuff that gets left on the cutting room floor and it can be hugely frustrating, particularly when it's really valuable material. Um, and there have been some examples in this story, which you know I, I found quite hard to have to leave aside um, some of the material from Spanish hospital wards um, a couple of weeks ago, which really did give that chilling indication of what was to come with people sitting on plastic chairs in the waiting area, um, unable to breathe. It was, it was very important material, but we don't know who filmed that. And we don't know exactly what time of day it was filmed or even exactly which hospital or we have a pretty good idea. So if we can't get those basic details nailed down, it has to be discarded. And, you know, we, we take information from that, but we are extremely strict about what gets through that net and what gets published. So you've got a pyramid where at the base of the pyramid, you have all of the things that you're looking at. Then above it, you have the things that, you know, you think are probably verified, probably accurate, but you can't verify them. And then you have the tip of the pyramid, which is the stuff you can actually go public yeah. with. So, and, yeah. and your process is basically like you spend all of your effort trying to figure out what's at the top of that pyramid. So, right, uh, right which is why it's resource intense. Now, you mentioned working with your uh, non-UGC uh, peers throughout Reuters. Uh, tell me what is there a particular sequence or is there an omnidirectional quality where if you see something happening you can alert a reporter on the ground or do they say hey I've heard about this have you like what what's the directionality of the collaboration it's two-way um so every single day we get lots of um tips requests in from different bureaus globally saying hey we saw this could you chase could you have a look or hey we know this is happening you know, I haven't seen any UGC, but can you, can you guys monitor, please? Because we think we might see something. And then when we start to see something that, that perhaps hasn't been flagged to us, we would we would alert the team in, in that bureau so they know that, that we're, we're tracking this and perhaps that feeds into their reporting. And if you think about deployment of resources, you know, we've got to be very um, accurate with, with where we put cameras, um, people, text reporters, because 
you know, our resources have to be used in the most efficient way. And if we've got some intelligence that can help direct people to the right place, based on what we're seeing on social media, that can be really useful too. So it very much is a, a two-way flow of information. And I mentioned Spain before, and you know, we've, we've just seen a huge amount of UGC um, coming out of Spain as the crisis reaches its peak there. And that's, that has been an important part of telling the story as a whole. And it's supplemented by um, the incredible work that our own teams have done in taking you know, risks to, to go into hospitals and film what they can see in front of them, obviously, once, once we gain access by those clinics. So it, it's, it needs to work in, in, a, in a collaborative way. And in fact, you know, that's what makes it so powerful, really, is when we can draw on the expertise from different colleagues globally to try and push things over the line to get them to the top of that pyramid. Uh, that's, that's wonderfully cogent. Thank you. Um, let's let's talk about moving on now to sort of the, the explicit topic of, of our chat today, which is uh, navigating coronavirus misinformation. And, and so let's start with there's, there's, there's information, there's misinformation, there's fake news, and then there's disinformation. And, and they all, those are not all the same thing. Can you walk us through, like we're, we're talking about misinformation, which I think is in some ways, uh, the gentlest way of saying, you know, somebody's uh, misinformed uh, and spreading it versus, uh, you know, enemy action, as we saw sort of, for example, with Cambridge Analytica uh, back in 2016. But walk us through the differences among those different categories, please, and, and, and as well as sort of their urgency. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of categorizing stuff. I think it really clarifies our direction and, and helps um, others outside our team understand what it is that we're doing. So just to put it in context, the UGC team works on verifying authentic material, but the reason why we've got such a focus at the moment on misinformation is we've just started up our fact checking unit, which is kind of coming under the same umbrella of verification. So that's, that's uh, how I've ended up very much uh, up to my neck in misinformation around the coronavirus at the moment. So yeah, let's talk about the category. So obviously there's information, which is facts, from uh, you know, data, uh, information, quotes from source, that kind of stuff. And that's the material that we're just journalists are dealing with day in, every single minute of the day. You know, that, that's, that's exactly what we're trying to bring in, filter, make sense of, and, and push out. Then we've got misinformation, and that's a very broad category. And it basically means anything which is false or inaccurate or misleading information. And then a subset of that is the disinformation. And the, the big distinction there is, of course, it's been, um, put out, shared with the intent to deceive. And the really interesting thing when you study misinformation is it's not always obvious when you look at the misinformation, what the intent was, who created it, and you know what the effect's gonna be. So I see a lot of misinformation and I don't always know whether it's disinformation because to, to go down that route is to go to track to source. It is actually quite a different endeavor and it can be quite tricky. And we have got colleagues who do that um, you know, they, they're looking at- Track what? Can you no, 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 tease this out for me a little bit? So what, what would those colleagues be doing? So if you look for patterns of, of um, types of misinformation that are being shared, um, who is sharing them? Can we look at the, the patient zero? Sorry to use viral terminology at the moment, but, but who put that, who planted that on social media? What do we know about the digital footprint of that individual? And what do we know about their connections? And then it usually involves a sort of wider understanding of, you know, uh, geopolitics and who's got motivation, because that's hugely important too, to, to seed such information. Um, so that, that's a, a big journalistic endeavor of its own. 
Now, the misinformation that I'm looking at is very much at face value. And the reason why we need to look at that information at face value is that much so I don't know whether it's disinformation, neither do the millions of people who are receiving it day in, day out. And to a great extent, they don't care. You know, they just want to know, is that true or not? And it's interesting that we're seeing a lot of um, search results for, for things people have seen on Facebook, which actually lead to our fact checks because they're seeing information on Facebook or other social networks. And they do not know whether it's true or not. Um, and they go straight to Google to try and find an answer because you know that, there's that burning question, like, can I trust what I've just read? Um, so I hope that kind of breaks it down a little bit, but it, I definitely don't have a, uh, you know, I can't tell you hand on heart whether much of the misinformation I see is actually disinformation or simply things that people have shared without realizing that it, it's false. Well, I, another way of thinking about it is uh, it's about who's doing something with the, the 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 data, right? Because we don't want to call it information, but something that originates maliciously as disinformation mm -hmm. then gets put into the sort of global marketplace of ideas. If someone then picks it up and spreads it, for the person who's the amplifier, that's misinformation. They're not necessarily understanding. So the same piece of the same headline, the same story, the same uh, the same picture, whatever it is, in one person's hands is disinformation, in another person's hands is is misinformation, and there are also people who would be maliciously, knowingly spreading disinformation. At that point, I think we would continue to call it disinformation. Exactly. We've we've got a brilliant example of that from the last couple of weeks. So you may even have seen it. You know, people on this on this call. There was a, a screenshot of a text message which claimed that friends in DC had told the individual sending the text message that um, there was about, Trump was about to announce a mandatory fortnight quarantine, invoking the Stafford Act, uh, you know, the military were gonna be on the streets. Um, that was shared extremely widely. Clearly the person mm. who put that together, put it together as a piece of disinformation, um, unless, unless it was a, you know, some sort of genuine rumor that, that that person had heard, but I think it was disinformation. But I think a lot of people who shared that would have done so um, thinking, oh my gosh, you know, my neighbors need to know this. I'm going to share this with absolutely no ill intent whatsoever. Um, it was astonishing how, how well read our fact check on that um, Stafford Act text message was read. It was right at the top of our most read articles for a while. And, and it goes to show just how many people saw that piece of misinformation. So yeah, that's a classic example of of something which started probably with, with malicious intent that actually ended up being shared by hundreds, thousands of people without any Ill, Ill intent whatsoever. Right, well, there's the old phrase, I don't know if it's from the UK or from the America, but uh, you know, uh, a lie will circle the world twice while the truth is putting its boots on. So we, we've had that before. So um, I, I, I want to just give a bit of warning, which I think that the topic after the next one is, you know, golly, is Google, love Google though we do and rely on it for everything, is Google the best place to go to do fact checking uh, of this kind? And so let's get to that next. First, uh, the question I have is, is really, it's like, what are the costs of misinformation and fake news, right? We, we know that, we know it's bad, but you know, like from your seat, tell us what, it, what, what are the costs to society, to media, to all of those things? Like what, what's, the, what's the downside here? Right, so I immediately think about the cost to Reuters clients and um, to other news providers around the world. So if, if a news provider uses information, spreads information that is not fully accurate um, or is later proven to be entirely false and does not issue corrections or does not acknowledge that, 
then it definitely erodes trust in that in that brand. And you know that it can range from sort of very small errors um, up into you know one of the things which gains the attention of people on social media is um, old imagery which is recycled and mislabeled. And people do pick this up, and you know it gets widely shared. So that's definitely something which um, can erode the trust in a brand, and that's a cost for sure. You know, if your audience don't trust you to provide uh, authentic, um, well-checked news, then that is a problem, clearly. And then the wider societal um, concern is that the, the cost can be, you know, even, even lives, because right at the moment, you know, the, the quality of information really matters. And you so, we've sometimes looked at the, the claims, the misinformation that comes over to our desk, and we kind of think, oh, but people don't really believe that, do they? But, um, but we think that, they, you know, there is, there is actually, you know, people are in a state of anxiety at the moment, definitely trying to take things to, they're trying to protect their own health. Um, so we've seen claims about, you know, gargling salt water, taking bicarbonate soda, sitting out in the sunshine, um, uh, you know, using alcohol, drinking alcohol even to protect themselves against being infected by the coronavirus. Now, many of the claims we've looked at aren't inherently going to be dangerous to an individual, but if it gives them the false sense of security that they're somehow taking into their hands the ability you know, not to be infected by this virus, which we know is highly contagious and can be contained by the means that, that we're all told about, then I think that really could be severely harmful to, to certain communities who are you know, maybe thinking that they're going to be immune to this thing, whereas actually they're not. They've got to take exactly the same advice that all of us are having to take at the moment. So, that's that to me is the the cost to society, and nothing is really um, underlying underlining the the importance in in having a, a combat a fight against misinformation than this story because there is so much misinformation around, and it really is you know having a, a direct effect and, and and increasing people's anxiety in many cases too. And this is not even this is not even talking about the the politicization the politicization mm. of coronavirus news where we have uh, you know people from different political camps with different agendas around around the science outside of that already thorny uh, issue we're just talking about down at the UGC level things bubbling up that are quite dangerous potentially I do want a, a quick nomenclature clarification for our viewers which I think Hazel when you're talking about a brand you're talking about a media brand right that the, the oh, erosion yes. of yeah, trust. Yeah. Right. Whereas for the Interactive Advertising Bureau, for us, brand is uh, you know, usually, uh, not, it, it includes that, but also includes you know, Procter & Gamble and Unilever and the like. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, getting back to the topic that I highlighted a moment ago, which is uh, you know, Google is the de facto information resource for us. Scott Galloway of Stern at NYU uh, has this whole armature where he talks about Google being God, uh, you know, as the source of all of all information. Uh, but uh, I am interested in uh, in your concrete advice about fact checking. When you see when when you as an individual or an organization, but I think for we're talking to to people in as as as, as citizens of the world for a moment. Uh, what do you advise in terms of concrete resources and also practices for fact checking? Like where do you go? Uh, I, for example. Um, for many years have been fond of Snopes.com, which is sort of an urban legend debunking site. Um, uh, Steve Ballmer, formerly the CEO of Microsoft, has launched USA Facts, uh, which uh, is doing, doing great work. From your side, what do you, where do you, what, how do you do it? For, if you don't have 12 people working on this 24 hours a day, you're just sitting in your living room, what do you do? 
So I think the first thing is it's very difficult to check everything that you see and you do have to pick your battles. I mean, we're, we're having to do that at the moment. There is so much misinformation coming in that we have to decide, right, what is the most viral? What actually is, is having the most impact? And also, you know, editorially, what's the most interesting? What do people actually want to read about this at the moment? So that's the first thing we, we try to, to think about. Then it's, it's kind of looking at unpicking the claim, trying to work out, are there... Are there some warning signs here that this is like a, for example, one of the types you see is copy paste, copy paste um, hoaxes go everywhere. So my uncle who knows someone who in this hospital, he said that this person, I mean, we've seen so many of those types over the last two weeks, um, not just text ones, but voice notes. I don't know if any of, you know, you've, you've come across any, but you know, my, it's definitely my uncle who works in a hospital says, or, you know, my, my friend who knows somebody who works in the government's xyz office that's a classic start and one thing you can do is literally take copy copy the first lines of those texts stick that in google and see whether anyone else has has you know posted the same thing and if they have then you know i'm i'm, I'm pretty confident in saying that's not real <laughs> or because at least if it was real it started putting somewhere else you know months ago so that's that's a classic one and the thing about those is they often bring in that sense of the personal you know it's a friend and if it's not got a person's name on it you think oh so is that my my friend's friend am i you know is that a direct connection and it, and it probably isn't and i think again people don't share that with that kind of intent to deceive you but they just think they're being helpful and passing on useful information so that's kind so of I, I, let's let's propose a rule of thumb right mm -hmm. which is uh, um if you're just going to look at something you should probably be skeptical but you don't have any other um, action that's required of you. It's if you are going to share something with other people that at that point, it's really incumbent upon you to do a little bit of checking. Um, one thing I've noticed is people posting what's clearly disinformation and the phrase, I checked it out on Snopes, so this is okay. And, and then people who are reading that then don't check it out on Snopes themselves because it's been conveyed to them. And then I will go and, because uh, I'm you know, obsessive compulsive about these kinds of, kinds of things, I'll go and check it out. And of course, Snopes has, has never made any kind of indication. So, so the, if you're going to, the, the, the takeaway is if you're gonna share something, then you should take the responsibility of checking it out. If you just see it and you're just gonna move on, keep scrolling, then no homework assignment. Is that a fair, Fair thing to say? Yeah, I think it's fair unless the content that you've seen comes from a very recognized body that you trust implicitly, well, or that, that you think is giving advice which is is current and relevant. So for example, you know, we've, we've spoken a lot to the CDC, the World Health Organization, the NHS in the UK, um, you know, then, then there's government material as well. And yes, the political stuff does matter, but I think when it comes to public health advice, you know, the, the policy which is being made at state level, at, at you know federal level, and, and in the UK at, at government level, you know that that is advice which I think you can probably share without having to go back and check every single point. But anything well, however, I'm going to push on you on that one because it's relatively easy for someone to doctor a website, and so right. click the link, right? Click Even if it link. says if it says it's New York Times, click the link because if it goes to Bob's New York Times, then that's probably not accurate. So. That's right. And we've got a name for that, which is imposter content. And mm. we are seeing a lot of imposter content. So I'm really glad you raised that. Um, yeah, when I, when I meant share from a recognized account, I was saying, yes, yeah, something you've seen natively on that account. Um, we've seen some really convincing imposter content around this, this topic, um, COVID-19, um, mocked up government releases, mocked up hospital letters, 
um, things that have got a UNICEF logo on the top, all carrying totally false advice. Um, so I would say definitely beware of those. Some of the warning signs are quite, you know, quite grainy pictures, screenshots of anything of documents rather than um, you know, native graphics. Um, but again, you know, some of the ones are very convincing. So it's absolutely vital to go back to the, the account of the, whoever's named in that, that piece of content and check that's something that they posted. Okay, so I want to, for our viewers, I want to, to bring this back to where we started a couple of weeks ago on the Tuesday, which is that our president, David Cohen, had an op-ed in Business Insider calling upon advertisers, please, to not block the news, right? And, and the, the, the value of this conversation, Hazel, for our viewers is uh, you have given us a sense of just how much work you're doing, how expensive it is how hard it is to do these things. And this is beyond just having a beat reporter who's covering something that you're, we're talking about all of the, the labor that goes into identifying accuracy and bias. And so uh, I, I want to just draw that, uh, draw that, those two things into connection because uh, you've given us a best, you know, a, a compelling reason uh, why monetization is so important, particularly at this moment where all of the attention is going to the news. And so we need to enable uh, the, the, the continued survival uh, of news organizations. So, so thank you for joining us. Let me start, end with sort of what is my traditional question, which is we're all getting to know every corner of our house uh, or apartment so much better, uh, every ceiling crack and every cobweb. What, what are you doing? You have two young children, uh, you live in London, what are you doing as an individual and as a family to, to stay optimistic and stay connected with the people you love? Give, give us a tip, anything anything helpful that you're, you've found. Oh, a tip, that's, we're, we're having some routine, some structure to our day. I think that's the single, the, the one thing we've tried to live by. The kids need routine, but actually, you know what? I really need routine too. And I think this is, you know, this, this process has shown me that more than anything. So some little things I do in the day to keep the same and even have kind of fairly set working hours, to be honest, it's kind of working quite well for us. So. Yeah, I think humans do need routine and I think we, we need to do our best to preserve some some sort of familiarity in these very, very strange and familiar days. I, I will just lean in and say, uh, you know, my advice always remember to call the people who live alone. That this is, mm -hmm. that the, I think that you with two small children are, are being hit uh, the second hardest by this, but I think that the people who um, live by themselves uh, are being hit the hardest by this. And so think about the people old or young who live alone, give them a call. Hazel Baker from Reuters, thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back again soon. Uh, I'm going to release you into back into the wild and to go have your dinner and do the credits uh, for I'm our viewers. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for coming. Uh, IAB There is a production of the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Uh, we Please join us on Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern when we will welcome Rashad Tabakawala, formerly of Publicist, the author of the book, Restoring the Soul of Business. Uh, he'll be here to talk with us about leadership in a time of crisis and about the lessons uh, that he's uh, describing in his book. Uh, for anyone who knows Rashad, um, I'll have to struggle to keep up with him. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, our show today uh, is uh, produced by Connor Healy, Joe Ants, John Ward, and Twafika Mahinadin. I'm Editor-in-Chief Brad Behrens here at the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Tune in on Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern, because if it's a weekday and it's 2 o'clock, it's time to IAB there. Thank you so much, and have a great weekend. Bye-bye, everybody.